You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. How would you like to reach your financial goals in half the time that you planned? Well, our guest today did just that. Sophie bought her first investment property at the young age of 23 years old, partly because she was very much encouraged by her mother. Her husband, Ben, didn't know much about real estate, but they both had MBAs and they both worked in high tech in the Silicon Valley. They ended up buying two rental properties in California that did not cash flow, but they found a way to use the profits from those properties to build a cash flow machine in other states. And they're here to tell us how they were able to reach their financial goals 15 years earlier than they planned. Sophie and Ben, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Hello. Thank you. Hi, Kathy. It's so good to see you, even though virtually. <laughs> yes. Good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So uh, so I'm curious. I know you've been very active investors over the last few years at a time when a lot of people were just really uncertain and on the sidelines. We actually have a friend we've known for years who you know keeps waiting and waiting for the right time. And he's waited, honestly, probably 20 years now. Uh, just waiting on the sidelines. So, anyway, what what have you been doing over the past couple of years when there's been some other some others that have just been kind of frozen, unsure what to do? How I mean, over the last couple of years since we've started investing, I mean, we've seen many friends come to us and ask questions, and the vast majority of them are intrigued and and then sit on the sidelines. Um, I think. So we've seen that, you know, I'm sure you've seen that many times over over the length, the last, as long as you've been in this for 20 years. I think the last time we spoke was in 2021. Um, so, I mean, that was, at that time, I think it was everyone was buying and inventory was the problem. And yeah. we had things that were, you know, some of the things that closed in 2021, we contracted in 2020 when there was a lot of uncertainty and the peak of uncertainty. Um, and just kept on going. And then by the time, and you, it, those could have, could have cratered. And then by the time they closed in 2021, we like closed in Ocala Quad that closed December, 2021. And I think I remember, um, we closed it December, 2021. We had four, all four units rented by New Year's. Um, wow. but that was, you know, a, a different world. And we just kept on going from there. So 2022 came around. And interest rates started to to go up a little bit. There was a little under uncertainty, and I saw a triplex in Tampa that was a little bit different from the properties we own. It was more in a downtown commercial location, A type property. It was our most expensive property, but I I saw that deal, and we were able to market it through Real Wealth. We we got that one in 2022. So we divested two Detroit properties last year and we have one listed now. And I think we closed another Palm Coast duplex at the end of last year. You know, that's probably the one property that we have most at the peak with not a great interest rate, but we had contracted that a long time ago and we just kept on going. And that's like kind of breaking even, but we assume that you know, things will get better over time. So that's just kind of taking care of itself. And then this year, we are, um, it's mostly about repositioning our, our 1031 exchange. Um, so that's what we're doing. And then there's the other piece, which is we might, 
we're thinking about converting that Tampa triplex into more of a short-term, long-term, medium, medium-term rental. Um, because it is in a downtown location, it, it's surrounded by employers, you know, commercial center, it could be good for that, but we're working up the courage to, to make that jump. Oh, very exciting. I'm actually going to be interviewing the the founder of uh, Furnish Finder, who is very much involved with those medium-term rentals. So it'll be fun to get some insight there. Uh, all right. Well, what are some of the big lessons you've learned? I know you said you've, you're learning some right now. So if you were to talk to your younger self, what advice would you give to them? You know, the two, the couple that was just starting to invest. I think, well, I guess my perspective is, uh, you know, don't be too scared to start. I think we've talked about this theme of, you know, always waiting for the right time. Um, you know, I know, and particularly now feeling like, oh, well, even more uncertain than ever before, but, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, so as young, as a young couple who, um, you know, has a dual income and uh, has some savings and afraid to, you know, put some, put some of their money into, into an asset and start small, like you have to start somewhere. So um, you obviously do your due diligence, uh, you know, work through real wealth, go through the resources, and then try to try to start that first investment um, if you can. Yeah. I mean, starting early, if I bought my first property like Sophie did at 23, then maybe I wouldn't be working today. But uh, in terms of so starting early, certainly, as she did. No. Um, and then, you know, in terms of investing, if I had to start again, it's hard to say because you you play the environment that's available to you. So right. It, you know, the hindsight is twenty twenty, but I think we might have, with our income, not bought, you know, the smaller houses at the time, sixty to $80,000 houses, and probably would have used our loans from the start on the, you know, on the small multifamily, mm-hmm. the duplex and the quads. Um, you know, we have some loans that are, you know, $75,000 and you and they're a great interest rate, but you realize that's not the best use of those 20 golden eggs mm-hmm. that you get. Um, you want to make the best use of those because um, they're so valuable. And to clarify, what you're talking about is that you can get 10 conventional investor loans per person. Correct. A lot of people think it's 10 per couple, but if you're able to qualify on your own, that's 20. And if you can get multifamily, you can get 40 or even you know much, many more. So I, I love that. That's really, really great advice. I wish I had listened to that advice when interest rates were so low and, yeah. and maxed out, uh, what did you call it? The, the golden eggs? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those low rates. Wow. I mean, that was, that's what you were really buying back then was the rate. And we were talking about that on the show is like, you're buying the rate more than the property at this point. But hmm. um, I was teaching it and not necessarily jumping on it as quickly as I wish I had. I love that. So uh, um, you know, oftentimes I have felt that I'd rather have a single family than a multifamily because it's a different kind of tenant. But has have you noticed any difference? Well, I'm not necessarily the one managing the property, but you know, I do think there's something to be said for for the the pride of ownership that you get from a family living in a house that it's their house and it's their yard, and you, you, it's almost you can imagine. From a psychological point of view, if you split two families in a townhouse, there, there, then there's shared ownership. 
And then that keeps on splitting by the time you get to, you know, 20 unit, you don't really care about the common space. It's, it's there for someone else to maintain. So we've been okay. You know, I, I can't necessarily notice a difference in our vacancy rates for the, for the duplexes versus the single family homes. And, you know, it's always nice with the duplexes and small quads. You have the conventional loan and then you have, you have anchor tenants. They don't all vacate at once. So, so it actually adds some stability to your platform. So I think in the size of a small multifamily where we are, where we have and we love that we haven't really noticed it, you know, the degradation in terms of vacancy rates or, or, you know, turnover and yeah. things like that. I think where we've seen it more is, you know, the, the area, the location, you know, as we were saying, we're divesting some of our Detroit properties. Those locations happen to be see neighborhoods. There's been a lot of crime and unfortunately our tenants were not very happy there. Um, and so those were single family homes. Um, you know, that that just didn't play out very well for us more for more so from a location perspective versus like the multi-unit or single family it can be so deceiving because i i went to those neighborhoods and the houses were really kind of cute you yeah. know and the neighborhoods look really nice during the day and it, it's hard to you know we've had this issue happen in parts of kansas city and parts of cleveland where if you're there looking during the day and these are you know really if you're from California, they're, you know, older homes that we're not used to seeing and they're really cute. And it just seems like, wow, you know, $60,000 for this, that's going to be, a, that's a steal. Exactly. And until you find out <laughs> you're the one who's getting stolen from. Exactly. And the cash flow actually was pretty good in Detroit, um, mm-hmm. but the maintenance <laughs> turned out to be, and the turnover is what yeah. kind of cleared, cleared out the decks every year. Right. So yeah, um, it just turned out that it wasn't a good long-term investment for us. Right. You know, and that's what we discovered too in our fund, in our in our single-family rental fund. We bought we bought half in Florida and then half in Ohio. Well, mainly in Detroit. And while the Detroit ones cash flowed great, uh, in Florida not as much. In the end, the returns were so much higher in Florida because even trying trying to sell off those homes in Detroit, mm-hmm. there was a lot more requirement in terms of you know fixing things up. Are you discovering that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we got into it, you know, you're thinking I buy a house for sixty five thousand dollars, it rents for nine hundred fifty dollars a month. What can go wrong? And and it's great for four or five years, and then when the tenant turns over and we have seven nine. $11,000 turn, then you're like, oh, that's what can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to get a contractor to go into some of the neighborhoods. They're afraid about their tools getting stolen. So, so I mean, and I don't want to be unkind to Detroit. We lived in the Mission. We lived in, in Oakland. And if, if you buy in the path of progress, um, progress has not been kind since 2020. And we look in the neighborhoods where we've lived in, and, and those have declined as um, great places, but those have declined as well. So that's just what's happened in the world. Um, and it's, a, you know, maybe a decision when you're younger and it could be, we made a lot of money in Oakland buying in the path of progress. Um, so, so that is a very good strategy, but now, now where we are is that's not really our strategy anymore. I want to be in the, in the B neighborhoods and the A neighborhoods where, you know, incomes are above median income. Um, and, you know, I try to look at the average home price and, and not be too far below the median home price. It, you have to be below it in order to get good value, but not too far below um, in order just to be where we want to be and where we can afford to be now with our portfolio. 
So what's your strategy today, given the higher interest rates and therefore lower cash flow? Are you just adjusting what you're expecting in returns? Or are you right. being more careful about uh, being in the path of progress where there could be some more appreciation? Yeah. Well, no, definitely. I think we've evolved to be more about IRR, internal rate of return over cash on cash. And, you know, I remember when we first started, that was the metric and it was all about cash on cash. And yeah. you know, I even see it now in the performers, people are starting to put IRRs on them. Um, and, and that's the way to go. And it, it definitely changes your thinking. I mean, I think if, if I was just starting out now, and we just did this with it, this Palm Coast duplex, like you can buy, especially in Florida, getting a nice brand new build, even if even the interest rate is higher, it might not cash flow a lot up front. But, you know, if you look at the IRR over the next seven to 10 years, it's going to be better than any investment you can get from the stock market. Um, but so we did one of those last year or even the, the Tampa triplex before, you know, wasn't cash flowing that much. But, you know, if you hold on to them, they do get better when they vacate. The rents go up. Um, but that is why we're thinking about the medium term rental strategy as a way of, hey, either taking our existing assets and trying to get more yield out of them or looking at ways to get a higher yield in a higher interest rate environment. So you can make that make that investment worthwhile. And it's it's more effort, but it, you know, it, it could be worth it. I'm working up. It's just like other people are just trying to buy their first house. Like we're working up the courage to get into it and, and also taking more active form of management and calendar management and all that in, mm -hmm. in order, like you said, the cash flows be um, more attractive. We know people have done it, so it's possible. I've read books. Mm -hmm. uh, I have friends who've done it, so it's possible. And it's just like working up the courage that like, oh, yes, we can do that too with two kids and two jobs and all of that. Yeah, I, I, w I wrote the forward for 30 Day Stay. I don't know if you got to read that book, but yeah, you did? Yes. I, well, I'm halfway through it. I read your forward okay. and I, I think I listened to one of the podcasts, okay. um, the podcast just yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she is, uh, she, they both give some really great information on how they were able to increase cash flow with the medium term stay and aren't as affected as some short term rental owners are. Although our, our short term rentals have really picked up again. It was so slow for the last six months and I don't know, it seems to be booming again. Maybe it's the weather. But uh, yeah, they they swear by the medium term. We haven't tried it yet, but Rich and I are in the same boat of, oh, we should just try it and see how it goes. So I look forward to hearing from you. And are you managing, you know, I, I heard in the podcast, you have a Utah place or a Park City place. Are you managing those yourself or doing? Yeah, we fired our manager. I really didn't have any intention of managing it myself, but uh, we just weren't really getting the results we wanted from our manager. So I felt like I was managing it anyway. And, uh, and it's really hasn't been that difficult. We know the neighbors really well and they'll watch over it for us. We give them, you know, a little bit of money to like bring in the garbage cans and just watch over it. Uh, but other than that, yeah, we just manage it ourselves. And that really does make a difference because I think some of the vacation rental managers can be pretty pricey, like 20, 30% of, of the income goes to them. So, so far, it hasn't been too much of a headache for me. I'm curious how you jumped from long-term rentals to short-term rentals. We thought of going from long-term rentals to a medium-term rental was like the natural sort of baby step to getting to more cash flow. How did you jump, make that what feels like a larger leap or did you not think that was? It was just accident, honestly. Uh, it was just a, a situation where we had, uh, we have a guest house on our property and 
uh, I just thought, well, let's just let's just see what happens. We'll put it on. Otherwise, it'll just be a guest house, but we'll just put it on Airbnb. And it's been rented. It rented immediately. I mean, I posted it and bam, it was rented because I live in an area where there's actually not very many hotels at all, but it's a desirable place. So um, it was it was definitely by accident, but it has been really good. And um, and then so the same with with the Park City one is we have a project there. And I wanted to, you know, help the project, but also, you know, at least own one of the units. If we're going to build a hundred homes, I'd like to own one. So when things were slow during COVID, you still got to pay the bank. They want their construction loan. So I was like, well, I guess I'll be buying a property and hope it rents. And, and it actually did pretty well. I, it's not as good as, as the ones that we have in California, but it's, it's doesn't matter too much because we like to use it for personal use. So if you look at some of these things like I want to I want a second home or a vacation home and that'd be nice if I got a little bit of extra money to cover some of the costs then it works out if you're really buying it simply for the income then it obviously has higher risk. Right. Maybe I'll convince Sophie to to buy one of those Bozeman houses. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I those look like they could be a great deal. We have yeah, we have another project a development in Bozeman. And I don't know if anybody's doing short-term rentals. I, I think that could be a really good play because there's university there and, you know, lots of tourism. So I'll have to ask my partner uh, yeah. if they, if they know of any other short-term rentals in there, because I really agree that could be a great deal. But we just have, we, we're now starting to sell short-term rentals at Real Wealth and we've had rave reviews. So, and that's mainly in the um, Jacksonville area of people being really, really happy with the return. So we're looking into it more and more. It's very exciting. Yeah, search for yield. Yeah, absolutely. You have to get creative at times like this when when costs have gone up so dramatically in, in uh, the borrowing costs. Yeah, exactly. And, and insurance costs. Right, and insurance on the short-term rentals. But, you know, I guess the hope is, and I'm not counting on it, right, our houses can stand to owning and pay for the, the the mortgage themselves. But if the interest rate environment improves and rents improve, then um, you could always refi and, and things you buy now can get better, right? So it won't mm-hmm. be like that forever. So what are your goals then? Are you clear about how many properties you want and where, where you want to end up? You want to answer it? Uh, well, we have a number. <laughs> we, and it's not really, we have a cash flow number. And it's not, um, it's more about the cash flow from real estate. Um, and I, well, I turn 50 and, and Sophie turns 40, God bless her, <laughs> in a few years. So we, we think we're well on track to meet that. Um, so we're about probably at least three quarters of the way. But, you know, as, as in this environment, it's hard to pick up houses, who knows what, three to $500 a door and just keep on itching yeah. towards it. So that's one reason why we're, we're looking at the medium and short-term rentals is like help take us across the finish line. Um, the other thing we're doing and that we've learned is, is you know, thinking about alternate income streams besides real estate, um, you know, that we could have this comfort. Um, so I've been um, doing something through my employer, which I've been able to do, thankfully, and, and Sophie's done really well in her career in the last couple of years is I'm deferring my salary essentially setting it aside kind of like a 401k. So I'm not paying taxes on it now. Um, and then I'm planning to start withdrawing that when I turn 50. 
Um, so that could be another form of income besides our real estate. You know, since I've I've learned, you know, from people that you want to have that that diversity, and you know, we've seen it even this year. Is this year wasn't the best year for for us in terms of occupancy and maintenance um, and vacancy. So the real estate goes up and down. So we're working on that other other form of income, and in about three years, hopefully, we'll you know maybe move on to that next phase, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So when you say you're deferring your salary, you're you're just kind of maxing out your four hundred one k's. Well, it's, it's very much like a 401k. It's called a non-qualified deferred income plan. And so it's like a 401k as I put money into it and I'm not taxed on it um, federally. But unlike a 401k, that I, I could put 100% of my salary. So it doesn't stop at 18500 So I, I'm putting basically all of my, sal- my base salary in, uh, into that. Um, so I'm not paying taxes on it now while we're, while we're making a lot of money. And then the other thing that's different from a 401k is I get to decide when it, when and how it withdraw, withdraws. So I said it to say, okay, I want to have it start paying out when I turn 50 over 10 years. And that's going to cover that bridge between 50 and 59 and a half when I can access my 401k. So if you set aside $100,000 and in 10 year, um, over 10 years, then you get $10,000 a year. Um, so having that money, taking up that salary and putting in for the next couple of years until I turn 50, that will be something that we'll have on top of our real estate income. And it saves us a lot of money on taxes now. And then as you know, when you don't have a W-2 job, almost all of our real estate income is is offset by depreciation. So hopefully that my, our tax bracket will be much lower by the time we turn 50 and, and that starts paying out. Um, so that's our, our alternative strategy that we're doing. And that's also slowed us down a little bit in terms of buying new real estate, but it's saving us a hell of a lot of money on taxes. So um, incredible. It's magical. <laughs> so when you're putting that much money aside, what are you living off of? <laughs> My income. <laughs> okay. So you're living off one income and the other income is going into retirement. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, right. And and Sophie's mm-hmm. done incredibly well in her career <laughs> over the last couple of years. So, you know, and we're we're fortunate enough between her income and, you know, some of our cost of living decisions, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to live off one income and to defer the other salary to save money on taxes. Incredible. And maybe have a little bit of money if we're willing to sell our stocks or company stocks while they're 30 to 40% down to invest in real estate, which we are reluctant to do. So that, that's been a little bit of a drag on, on our acquisitions. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're, if you're, always have your eyes out on deals and you see one that's good. You at least know the money's there, yes. but you don't have to buy. And that's, that's important to not be in any kind of rush to just make sure you got the, uh, got a good deal. Yeah. We've seen some good ones lately too. There's a great fourplex that uh, if nobody buys it, we will. <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> I think that was the one is in Jacksonville. Yeah. Well, I think I saw, I saw that last night. Yeah. Well, yeah. we can't afford it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sophie, what is it that you do? Uh, I work at a tech company um, mm-hmm. out in San Francisco. Um, I'm in business development. So i um, been fortunate enough. I got promoted this last year and it's been a really, really great company to work for. So been very Wonderful. fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Ben, you're in tech as well? Yes. And Sophie's mm-hmm. being a little bit humble, you know, I guess I'm 10 years older, so I got a 10 year head start on, on my career. And then just this year, I think her income surpassed mine. Wow. Um, so that's exciting <laughs> that, that, that Sophie's doing so well in her career. 
um, so that we can live off our income and also someday live off your investment that you made when you're 23, um, the, the, the row of houses. So. Let's just say he married well. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, in many, many ways. Well, let's, um, let's review that uh, first acquisition, Sophie, when you were 23. What, what happened there? Um, I mean, at that point, I was uh, I was in management consulting, traveling a ton um, for work. Uh, so I decided to move back home after college, which allowed me to save lots of money. Um, my mom happened to be a real estate agent, kind of part time, and so and we've always, you know, my family always dabbled in real estate, and so she was like, "Well, you know, you should buy your first house. You're already 23. <laughs> what are you waiting for?" And she's, she's like out there sourcing and finding opportunities for me. And anyway, we found a place, um, a triplex out in Newark, California, uh, which we purchased, you know, back, God, 2009, 2009. Wow. And, uh, such a good time. Good time. Um, we held it for until like 2017, 2017. Um, you know, through that time we managed it ourselves. So we didn't pay for any property management or anything. Uh, and then it really wasn't until I probably met who, as you can tell, is very good with numbers and um, analytical that sort of started thinking, well, one, my mom was asking him to do a lot of, oh, now that you're married, you have to do the maintenance work, <laughs> so, which he was not very happy about. So he decided instead he would run the numbers to understand, well, can I pay someone else to do this? <laughs> um, and then uh, turns out it had appreciated so much that we ended up sell- selling that, doing it. 1031 exchange and bought seven properties in Cincinnati, Ohio through Real Wealth. Um, that was effectively how our journey started. And here yeah. we are. And here you are. So exciting. Uh, I love hearing this because a lot of our listeners are actually skewing younger these days. It's it's wild. We used to kind of cater to a baby boomer crowd that was frustrated because they'd lost so much money in 2008 and wanted to rebuild. Uh, but wow, the the younger generation is really kind of catching on, and um, but they they don't have the advantage of of history and and kind of knowing does this really work over time. So what would you say to them looking at time? Because now you have a little bit of time to look back and and uh, and see like what would be different if you hadn't have taken action. Well, actually, let's see. Before we did that first acquisition or the first sale, you know, you had a model already that projected. How long? <laughs> the minute we got married, he put together a model of what oh. what it would take for us to to get to retirement. Oh yeah, well, I, I mean, we talked about that a little last time as I made this model when we got married, and I thought I was going to have to work for another thirty years um, to get to our number, and then we started investing in real estate and and doing well in our careers, and the real estate did incredibly well, and I think we met the number in my model in seven years. I think we surpassed that and in 2021. And that was a lot through real estate. Now, the young people today might not be able to count on the same environment we had, but you, you know, you know, as well as I do, it's, it's start, it's start early. I mean, I think, I think for some reason, and it might be because of the cost of a house that people are trained, trained to try to time, really time the market as when it comes to real estate, whereas, you know, those same people might put 10% of their salary into their employer, um, or 10% of their salary, 18500 every year into your 401k. And it's something that you just do when you, you dollar cost average and, and you get um, 
doing that, you can get a good return in the stock market over time. And people are trained for that. And somehow in real estate, there's a different part of people's brain that 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 says, well, this is not a good time to get into real estate. Um, and, you know, I think if you treat it the same way and whatever income you have, and and if you're lucky enough to have um, disposable income or two, dual income, whatever you money you have, if you're able to put that into real estate, you can do it the same way and you can get better than that 10% return that you might get in the stock market over time. I think if you, if you do the modeling, you know, you could easily get 15, 16, 17% IRR with a overall housing market that only goes up, let's say 5% on average per year um, because of the power of that leverage. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, you know, I think if you just do it year over year, you are going to outperform um, the market, and within a couple of years, you'll have more equity than than you know what to yeah, do. And then, and to your point about like the mindset, I think most people maybe they think of buying a house as like, well, I'm buying a house that I would want to live in. This is like it has to meet all of my requirements, has to be in a great location and like near a metro or whatnot. And um, I think our you have to shift your mind if you're thinking of investment property. Like there are different criteria that you're really looking for, um, which is you're not necessarily buying a house for yourself. You're really buying a house for investment and you need to ensure that the returns are good. And that's what's you know, generally more most important. It's so interesting because I do have the benefit of lots of time behind me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but I remember uh, when, when, when I was young and my dad was a dentist, a very high earning dentist. And I think his salary was like $90,000 or something. And we bought a home in Atherton, a one acre home uh, when I was seven. And it was, it was about $90,000. And, you know, we look back now and think, oh my gosh, can you imagine those homes are probably four or 5 million or more um, today. But back then it was expensive. Yeah, It was the luxury part of the Bay Area, $90,000. You couldn't even fathom what four or five million dollars was for a house. It wasn't in our consciousness. But then the next year, you know, homes became more expensive and and you know, you start to sort of inch your way up into comfort levels of of higher prices. When Rich and I bought our first home, it was five hundred and forty thousand dollars in the East Bay. It's millions of dollars now, but five hundred and forty thousand was enormous back then. So people think that today it's hard to buy, but it's always been hard to buy. I think yeah. the only time it hasn't been hard to buy is when you bought in 2009. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining me here today. You guys are so much fun to have here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank so you. Thank you and catching up. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can get more exciting information like this at realwealth.com. You can also get referrals to some of the teams in the markets where Ben and Sophie bought that have really helped them create the financial freedom and passive income that they were hoping for. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.